This morning we begin a new sermon series, and for the next couple of months we will be in the Sermon on the Mount, a sermon that Jesus uh, preached, and we will be in this all fall. And so if you have your Bibles, you can turn to Matthew chapter 5. Sermon on the Mount is a uh, very important set of text in Matthew 5, 6, and 7. It's a sermon where Jesus uh, gives us, I think, a vision for his kingdom. And of course, we know from Colossians 1.13 that for those of us who know Jesus Christ as Savior, he has transferred us from the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of light of, of his dear son. And so over and over, Jesus is going to be talking about what is my kingdom like? What does it look like for people to be ruled and guided and directed by Jesus himself? How should they live? How should they respond to one another? How do they respond to those outside the faith? How do they respond to times where you need to forgive someone? How do you respond in marriage? How do you live for purity? How do you pray? How do you fast? All these kinds of instructions are given to us in the kingdom. And I, I think for us right now at Stonehill, I think it's very, very important for us to take a long look at this sermon, the Sermon on the Mount. Because I think now more than ever, the people of God, those of us who have, who have come to faith in Jesus Christ and are now part of this new rule and reign that God has, even as we anticipate the, the complete consummation of that kingdom, still future, as the sermon will describe. It is good, I think, and appropriate for, us, appropriate for us to orient ourselves again to this kingdom, to the king of this kingdom. Because the reality is when you look at this <laughs> Sermon on the Mount that describes what, what the kingdom of God, what the rule and reign of God is supposed to look like in our lives. Well, I hate to tell you, it's going to be quite clear to you that, you li- that all of us are living in very unkingdom-like ways. In fact, I think the sermon could be a little depressing. I hope it won't be because there's grace here. But I think it's important for us to reorient ourselves so that we can be the people of God, so that we can, can live out these kingdom principles, so that we can, in, in a very real way, show the world what the rule and reign of Christ ought to look like. Another way to put it is by learning to more comprehensively and more consistently live out the Sermon on the Mount, we we not only show what Christ is like, we not only show what the kingdom is like, but we give, in some sense, a preview of the full consummation of that kingdom. And believe me, the world needs to see that. And of course, what makes this sermon also difficult is that it's going to be very clear to you, passage after passage, verse after verse, that the kingdom of God, the kingdom of heaven, Christ's kingdom, is upside down compared with the rest of the world. I mean, the reality is that almost everything 
in this world is, is pushing against Christ's kingdom. The kingdom of Christ is very different and it's easy for us to import from the world and, 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 and import ideas and principles from the world and then try to make it work in sort of a baptized Christian context. It won't work. They're two very different things. So, as we launch out into this sermon, my hope and prayer for us is that for those of us who know Christ, a little bit more consistently, a little bit more comprehensively, we will internalize and live out this kingdom presented to us in Matthew 5, 6, and 7. For those of you who are here online or you're here this morning, and maybe you don't know Christ as your Savior, maybe you are searching and considering Jesus Christ, I hope that you will find uh, as we go through this sermon, you'll begin to understand the upside-down nature of what Christ is talking about. And that as you look at this sermon, as you look at these words of Jesus, he, by the Holy Spirit, will guide you and direct you and, and move you to consider Jesus fully and even to put your faith and confidence in Christ alone. Well, let's dive into the actual sermon here. And what we want to see in this uh, first section, actually, we're just going to actually look at just two verses of the sermon. I want us to see the foundation the foundational realities of Christ's kingdom. So let's look at the first. I'll read to you the two Beatitudes. These are this is opening section of the Sermon on the Mount. The, the text you just read responsibly together um, were um, uh, part of what is known as the Beatitudes. Let me read verse 3 and 4. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. The first foundational principle you have to come to grips with in these Beatitudes is the word blessed. Some of you say blessed. What does that word mean? I mean you know, sometimes you can in, in, in translate that happy, but it seems kind of superficial to what God is, uh, what Jesus is trying to get at here. But I think what, what Jesus is trying to say and it says, blessed are the poor in spirit and blessed are those who mourn. What he's really trying to articulate, I think, is these uh, uh, blessings, this blessedness that he talks about is a picture of God's grace and mercy to God's people. What Jesus is trying to say when he says, blessed are the poor in spirit, blessed are mourn, he is trying to show that this state of being blessed, and, and we'll get to the rest of the, uh, the Beatitudes in, in, in just a second here, but it, it's, it's an idea that blessed means you've been given something by God's grace. It's not something you work for. It's not something you earn. It's not something you perform for. These blessings that he enumerates in the Beatitudes in the first 12 verses of, of chapter 5, of Matthew 5, he's trying to demonstrate that this is a gracious gift. It's a gracious spiritual gift that he gives to everyone who knows Christ as their Savior. Blessed are the poor in spirit. 
blessed are those who mourn. Now, why this is so critical to get your, our heads around the, this grace, these graces that God has given us, is because we often look to God for temporal blessings. And there's nothing wrong with thanking God for temporal blessings. If you have good health today, you can praise God for that. If you've got a job today, you can praise God for that. If you're doing well academically, you can praise God for that. But those are temporal blessings. What, what Jesus is talking about is these massively important, gracious, eternal blessings given by grace to everyone who is a believer. And already you see when Jesus talks about these blessings, these spiritual blessings that you don't work for, you don't perform for, you don't earn, already Jesus is showing that, 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 that this sermon and this kingdom he's going to talk about over and over again are, is an upside-down kingdom for the rest of the world. The kingdom of Christ is by grace, not effort. Grace, not performance. Grace, not achievement. Grace, not success. And that's what makes this so upside down. It's interesting when you look at that, blessed are the poor in spirit. I'll get to that, what that means. Uh, And blessed are those who mourn. Sounds pretty negative. How does God graciously bless you in that state? But it's very interesting. I suspect that when you make your resume up, okay, you got to go to another job or you're trying to get a promotion or maybe your application process at Princeton University. I suspect you didn't say, uh, uh, you know, hey, just want to let you know I'm, a, I'm, I'm, I'm poor in spirit. I really don't belong in your school or your company, but maybe by grace you could let me in. I don't think you did that. But that's the way the kingdom operates. It's by grace. It's a gift. You don't work for it. You don't earn it. A human level, I remember sort of a human example of grace. Uh, I, I, I went to a school, I, we had a great choir director in my school, we had 60 voices, we were a very good choir. And what he did uh, every year is he took the 16 best voices, four basses, sopranos, altos, tenors, and put together this madrigal singing group where they would sing these very high-fluting uh, concerts, you know, with a full meal. We were all dressed up like old uh, English. You know, we had a king and a queen. We had a court jester, a shepherd, a priest, dressed up in these old English costumes. We would sing in all kinds of different languages. It was a very impressive group. Of those 16 people that sang in my junior and senior year, about four of them went on to have actual music careers. They were that good. But that year, they couldn't find a fourth base. I broke my arm first game, and I broke my arm. I couldn't play football, and so I was free, and my choir director said, why don't you come in and try out for this group? So I came in and tried out. Now, I I knew I didn't have a great voice. I'm not singing on the music team, and there's good reason for that. But I made it. And after I tried out, I thought, man, I made it. And he, he, he said, listen, you're really not good enough to be in this group, but I need a fourth base, and you're not that bad. You're reasonably on pitch, but you're never going to sing a solo. Welcome to the group. <laughs> and I must say, that every single practice of that group all fall in the 
four or five dinner performances that we were able to do, I felt blessed. I knew I didn't belong. I was the 16th singer. Worst, I was the worst singer. I didn't belong. I was there because nobody else wanted to sing that part. I was reasonably on pitch, but it was a gift. And I reveled in it. I loved it. It's grace. So the first foundational principle that Christ's kingdom is not about performance, it's not about earning, it's not about working for it, it's not about what we do, it's a gift. And it's described by Jesus, blessed are the poor in spirit, blessed are those who mourn. That's the first foundation. But let's move to the second foundation of God's kingdom here, of Christ's kingdom. He says, blessed are the poor in spirit. When he says poor in spirit, you, you need to know if, if you look in Luke 6, I believe, um, there's sort of another, uh, we think it's another sort of a, a summary of this same sermon. And it just says, blessed are the poor. And so many uh, commentators have said throughout the years that what Jesus is saying is, blessed are those who are economically poor, who are financially poor. But that's not what it's saying here. It says, blessed are the poor in spirit. And what Jesus, I think, is trying to communicate here is that blessed, grace flows to those who are poor in spirit. Grace uh, uh, is given to people who understand their own spiritual poverty. What Jesus is trying to say in this text is those who receive God's grace are not the ones who earn it. They're not the ones who work for it. They're not the ones who perform for it. They are the ones who acknowledge that before a holy God, they have nothing to offer God. They are completely spiritually bankrupt. Paul talks about this in Romans 3. All have sinned, fall short of the glory of God. No one does good, not even one. That's what it means to be poor in spirit. I am spiritually impoverished. In other words, in and of myself, I cannot even get to God on my own power. I need to be blessed. And, and the first step of being blessed is to understand I can do nothing to save myself. I'm hopeless. I'm helpless. Apart from Christ, I have no other way to get to God. And I think what Jesus is saying is God's grace, blessed are those who are poor in spirit, those who acknowledge their own spiritual poverty, those who recognize they can't get to God in their own performance, those who realize they have nothing to offer a holy God because of their sin. Those are the ones who are blessed. And notice what it says. Blessed are the poor in spirit. What? For theirs is the kingdom of heaven. The way to get into the kingdom of God, the way to get in into Christ's kingdom is to acknowledge that apart from Christ, you have nothing to offer God. There's no way in and of yourself you can get to God. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. And this is the upside-down nature of the kingdom. So many people, I've got lots of friends I talk to here in the area, they, they, they all think, they all hope that God's going to grade on the curve. And they're better than enough people that they're going to get in. 
And they sort of assuage themselves. If there is a God, surely he will grade on the curve. And the reality is, no, he, he doesn't grade on the curve. In fact, the way to get in t- with God is not to do anything and not to earn anything, is to begin to acknowledge that you are poor in spirit. But I think there's more to that. That's how you get into the kingdom. The Spirit of God has to open your mind up. You can't even do it on your own. The Spirit of God has to open your mind up and convict you of sin, righteousness, and judgment, John 16. And only then will that drive you to trust Christ alone to save you and get into the kingdom. But in another sense, this is the way every believer, once you got into the kingdom, ought to be living your life. You ought to be looking at yourself, and when you see yourself, just yourself, you ought to continue to have this spirit of, of, of being poor before God. You need to continue to have this humility that recognizes that apart from Christ's work, in and of myself, I can't even get into the kingdom, and certainly I can't stay in the kingdom, because it's all by grace, blessed are the poor in spirit, but also to realize that the way that a believer begins to grow and exhibit the structure of Christ's kingdom is to continue to understand that they are literally poor in spirit before a holy God apart from Christ. I like how the Apostle Paul puts it at the end of Romans 7. Uh, some of you may not think that Paul is talking about his actual walk with Christ. I have actually think he does. And at the end of Romans 7, after he said, the things I want to do, I don't always do. The things I don't want to do, I do. And he, he, he kind of recites his struggle against sin, his struggle against the flesh. And at the very end of Romans 7, he says, wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? Thanks be to God. That it's Jesus who can deliver him from his wretchedness. Now, I'm not trying to get anybody to be morose or to fall into some slew of despond, right? But I think you, you would do well tomorrow morning. So for some of you, this will be easier than others. Is when you look in the mirror to say out loud, wretched person that I am. And, and, and we're not talking about your physical appearance or the fact that you look bad coming out of sleep, okay? We're wretched. Apart from Christ, we have no ability to get to God. Apart from Christ, our efforts cannot get us right with God. We have to, by the Spirit, learn to be poor in spirit, learn that we have nothing to offer God, and then, and then be pushed to Jesus Christ to receive his grace. And as we progress in our walk with Christ, we still have to have that same understanding that we are poor in spirit. That's how grace works. Let me give you a little test to see if you really get God's grace. One test. See if you're really living as one who is poor in spirit apart from Christ and that theirs is the kingdom of God. If you find yourself very irritated by other believers, and believe me, we've got a lot of opportunity for that this last year with politics and COVID. 
If you find yourself being very kind of irritated with your family members, irritated with your roommate, sort of low-level irritated about all the other people that seem to affect your life in negative ways, I suspect you've lost sight of the fact that you're poor in spirit and that apart from Christ, you can't get to God. And part of, you're spiritually bankrupt in every way. And if you truly understood that, you would understand that you, your relationship with God is based on grace. You would understand that every other believer you're interfacing with that are driving you crazy, they're in the kingdom by grace, not their performance. And if you truly understood that, and you understood that anyone else you have to interface with who may not have been transformed yet by God's grace, that they're living according to the world, and they're poor in spirit as well. They may not know that. The Spirit of God may not have shown them that yet. It would change the way you viewed yourself. It would change the way you viewed God. It would change the way you viewed other people. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Let's look at the third foundational reality of Christ's kingdom. It's in verse 4. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. You know, upon first glance, you might think that this is talking about anybody who's had a major life loss and they're mourning and God's going to comfort them. That's not, I don't think, what's in view when Jesus is talking about this. I think you heard earlier when uh, Pastor Jim was leading us in worship, it's referring to mourning for your sin. There are other verses that talk about how Christ will comfort those who are afflicted. What he's saying here is that grace flows unearned, unperformed for to those who mourn for their sin. And it says they shall be comforted. What the text is saying is, is that God's grace operates for those who understand the weight of their sin, who understand how much they have offended a holy God. Every human being has is, is been given life by God, made in the image of God, given an assignment to manage and rule God's world under his authority. And all of us have decided in many ways, not going to follow your way, God, even though you made this world. I'm going to manage the world the way I want to see it managed. And if you haven't noticed yet, we're making a mess of it. What he's saying is, is that part of what it means to be in the kingdom is someone has to mourn for their sin, has to see their sin for what it is. Again, only the Spirit of God can do that, and which should drive you to Jesus Christ, who's the only hope for your sin, because he died for your sin, he rose again, he gives you his righteousness, so that you stand before God not based on your righteousness, but based on his righteousness, freely given to you by grace. He says, you will be comforted. Well, how are you comforted? Well, when you come to faith in Jesus Christ, God opens your heart, you begin to see your sin for what it is, and you mourn and realize you have sinned repeatedly against a holy God who is now obligated because of his character to punish you and your sin, but he has instead sent his son in your place to take the punishment that you deserved. And now when you mourn for that sin and it drives you to Jesus Christ, it says you'll be comforted. How are you comforted? Because the same God who is holy and righteous, who needs to punish all sin, punish your sin in Jesus, and then says to those who have received the grace of God by faith, he says to us, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. That's how he comforts you. 
But of course, that's how you get into the kingdom. But I think Jesus is also talking about how do you live in that kingdom? How do you live consistently with that kingdom, even as we anticipate the the full consummation of that kingdom when he returns again? It it means that we, we ought to regularly be mourning for our sin, understanding that we're comforted when we do that because we know our sins are fully forgiven in Jesus Christ. But there needs to be an honest, full throated, mourning of our sin even now that we are in the kingdom. I'll give you an example of how God worked in my life this week. Friday's my day off. My wife and I went, did some bike riding. We ended up at the, uh, the uh, Princeton Battlefield, reading books, beautiful day. It was a gorgeous day. I actually took a nap out there in the middle of the battlefield. I get up from my nap, and for some reason, I fixate on something I hadn't thought about real recently. I thought about something that happened to one of my family members. Okay, it wasn't even something that happened directly to me. But there was an injustice made against one of my family members, and I got up thinking about that, and I got up thinking about the people who did that several years ago. And before long, I'm starting to talk to my wife about this incident again. It's It's happened years ago. And I'm starting to get worked up over it. And I'm starting to rehearse. Have you ever done this? Rehearse what I wish I would have said and what I probably should have said several years ago. And boy, I sounded eloquent to myself. I sounded like a crazy person to my wife who said, I, what, are you ta- what, are you, what happened when you, what, why are you talking about this? Well, wisely, I stopped talking crazy. And uh, it was just a few hours later, I've been doing this little project. I've been going through the Book of Common Prayer. I'm doing, I'm, doing, I'm doing evening prayer. Now, some of you may be doing all five times of prayer. You're godlier than I am. I'm doing the evening prayer. So I'm doing the evening prayer, and I'm, uh, it, 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 if you've used the Book of Common Prayer, you can get it on your phone. It's got a lot of passages of scriptures to read. It's got the Lord's Prayer to recite, other things to think about and say. There's tons of confession, etc. And so I'm, I'm up there in this little mountain next to my house. I call it a mountain. It's a, it's a hill. I'm saying this out loud, and I'm saying the Lord's Prayer out loud. Our Father which art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and then and forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us. I read those words out loud, and I went, uh-oh. I haven't forgiven those people like I thought I did. Well, that was convicting. And then there was another part of the Book of Common Prayer readings. It was a prayer of confession. It goes like this. Almighty and most merciful Father, we have erred and strayed from your ways like lost sheep. We have followed too much the devices and desires of our own hearts. We have offended your holy laws. We have left undone the things which we ought to have done, and we have done those things which we not ought to have done. And apart from your grace, there is no health in us. And so I confessed out loud on that mountain. I've got bitterness, God. In a very real sense, I think I, think I mourned. I mean, I, I sort of groaned. I mean, this thing happened years ago, and it didn't even happen to me directly. And why are you so agitated? And so I confessed that sin. 
And then I read the prayer of pardon. The Book of Common Prayer says, Grant to your faithful people, merciful Lord, pardon and peace that we may be cleansed from all our sins and serve you with a quiet mind through Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen. When I was at the Princeton battlefield, I did not have a quiet mind or a quiet mouth. But having gone through this exercise where God's word, the Lord's Prayer, which we'll get to in a couple months in this series, in confessing my bitterness before the Lord, to sort of mourn, I was comforted. Because I knew I had pardon and peace. I knew that Jesus Christ had already cleansed my sins and simply mourning for my sins sort of puts in practice what is already true but, but allows God's grace to sort of move in real time. And I was a different person when I came off that mountain. Why? Well, that Jesus said, blessed, blessed are those who mourn for they will be comforted. And I was comforted because of the pardon that God offers to me. He offered it to me when I first came to him, but even now he continues to offer that pardon. And I can claim it and be comforted. And that's the third foundation of Christ's kingdom. What is interesting about this text as Jesus starts us off by saying God's grace works for those who are poor in spirit, spiritually impoverished and understand that, and God works with those who mourn for their sin. It starts out very negative, so to speak. In other words, the pathway to be comforted and the pathway to get into the kingdom and then to be a fully uh, vested partner in that kingdom goes through the mourning for your sin and understanding your spiritual bankruptcy that you have apart from Christ. And it's going into a dark place. You got to get into a dark place before you see the beauty of God's grace. That's the counterintuitive way forward for the kingdom of Christ. And of course, we know that in other contexts. If you want to go buy a diamond for your beloved, right? You go to a jeweler, they're going to put a, a very dark cloth velvet cloth and I'm going to show you those diamonds and those diamonds are going to be brilliant against the darkness of that black cloth. If you're an amateur uh, astronomer, I, I don't think a good idea would be to set up your telescope in the middle of Times Square. You're going to find the darkest patch of sky you can find so that the brilliance of all of the, the things you want to look at, planets and stars and all the other astronomical bodies that you can see, you, you want it against the darkest sky you can go to. One of my most embarrassing moments as I was at a movie in the afternoon and I got confused about how to get to the restroom halfway through the movie and I went out the side door and when I opened the door, this brilliant afternoon light streams into the theater. And the last thing I heard as I closed the door trying to realize that what a mistake, I heard a guy said, what an idiot. That's me. Why? 
why you can't see a movie when it's so light. They darken the lights of every theater, whether it's Broadway or a movie theater. I think what Jesus is trying to get across early in this sermon is that the way of the kingdom is upside down and the way of the kingdom is not through your performance, it's by grace. And the way of the kingdom is to actually allow the darkness of your own uh, spiritual bankruptcy apart from Christ, either before you come to Christ or even after you come to Christ, and the mourning of your sin to, to, to let that sink into you and, 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 and compare that darkness with the beauty and glorious light of the grace of Jesus Christ. And you will never see it apart from comparing the grace of God to the reality of your spiritual impoverished soul and from the sin that you ought to be mourning over probably more than you are. And lest you think that gets you into a morose period, let me remind you. It says, yeah, blessed are the poor in spirit. But then remember the second half. For theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Let me pray for us. Dear Father in heaven, I thank you for your word. I thank you, Jesus, for this sermon. And Lord, I pray for us. I suspect a number of us, Lord, have been affected by the the culture around us and we're trying to perform for you, God. We're trying to earn your love. We're trying to somehow do something that would make us more acceptable to you, Lord. And I pray that you would deliver us from that treadmill that goes to nowhere. I pray by the Spirit of God that if there's anyone here who does not know Christ as their Savior, you would open up their hearts and minds and they would see their spiritual bankruptcy, that apart from Christ there is no hope. But I also pray for those of us who are already in your kingdom, awaiting your future consummation of that kingdom, I pray that we would also regularly allow the Spirit of God to to remind us of our spiritual impoverishment, our spiritual bankruptcy, that we would be able to say like the Apostle Paul did, wretched person that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? That we would be people who would take our sin seriously in a full-throated, honest, non-denying way truly mourn for our sin, our sins against God, our sins against one another. But I pray that as we, we live in the, in the darkness of those exercises, Lord, I pray that you would remind us, Lord, that blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn for their sin, for they will be comforted. And Lord, as we attempt to live out your upside kingdom in a new way, I pray that we would display the beauty and glory of your grace, the beauty and glory of your kingdom, and that the outside world would look in and see something fundamentally different in the way we operate, in the way we think, in the way we act, in the way we talk what we do.
all for your glory. In Jesus' name.